I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 139 of the podcast, everybody, with me, Dan Prosser, and my co-host, Andrew Frankel. Now, this week, we're talking about magazine long-term test cars. Uh, I hope that we can sort of explain to all of you why magazines run long-term test cars. Is it just a blag, or is there a good sort of rigorous purpose behind these cars? Um, Me and Andrew, we talk about some of the cars that we've run before, the ones that we've loved the ones that we've perhaps hated and been glad to see the back of. Uh, I think there are some good tales in there as well. So hopefully you'll, in, you'll enjoy this topic. Um, I also, before we get into long-termers, I also just wanted to talk about the Lamborghini Huracan Storato, this sort of new off-road one that has been revealed in the last few days. Um, and we, we talk about the terrible promotional video that Lamborghini produced um, <laughs> to, to launch that car. Uh, we also talk about an article that I've written recently for the Intercooler app and website about competing in grassroots motorsport. Um, so we discuss those things, but we get stuck into long-term test cars after a few minutes. Uh, thanks for listening. Plunging new depths of self-indulgence this week, potentially, Andrew, <laughs> because we're talking about the the magazine long-term test cars we've loved and maybe the ones we've hated as well. I mean, that is an indulgent topic, but I don't know. We have license to do that from time to time, I think. Um, and because because we're, we're, we're journalists and we're, we are um, people who are notoriously uh, averse to putting our hands on our own pockets <laughs> and actually buying cars uh, ourselves. These are sort of, okay, they are our long-termers, but to, in anybody else's world, these would be the cars, that these would be our daily drivers, wouldn't they? So, so what we're actually doing is talking about the cars we've been knocking about in over the years, yeah. which just happen to have been, you know, not owned by us. And hopefully we'll demonstrate that just because they are essentially a free car, we haven't necessarily softened our view towards them or given them an easy ride. Um, but we'll come to this in a moment. I, there are a couple of other things I want to talk about first. Um, I just want to give a story that I published this week on the Intercooler app and website, a bit of a push, um, because I went uh, and competed in an auto solo event, which is a proper back-to-basics, grassroots form of motorsport. Um, and we, we have a partnership with Motorsport UK, the governing body for motorsport in this country, um, and they have a new initiative called Streetcar. And it's all about encouraging people to participate in motorsport in their everyday road cars. Um, which is, you know, I think possibly until you he- hear that it's even possible, it might not occur to you that you might be able to do such a thing. But whatever road car you've got, you know, it might even just be a little city car or something. You could go and compete in a very cheap, very affordable form of motorsport if you wanted to. I did this auto solo at Donington Park on a big tarmac apron they've got there. Um, 
and it, I had to join the Loughborough Motor Club, which cost 20 quid. Um, I had to pay a £51 entry fee. Um, but apart from that, that was it. You don't need, well, you do need a, a Motorsport UK license, but it's free to get. It's called RS, RS Clubman. It's free to get and it takes minutes to apply for. Um, and with minimal effort, almost no hassle whatsoever, I found myself competing in motorsport and it's properly licensed properly regulated timed motorsport um, and I just think it's fantastic that there's this new initiative out there and it takes so little money so little effort and anyone can go and do it so let's just say I don't know wherever you're doing this is I don't know 100 miles say an hour and a half from where you live what everything including your fuel for getting there I don't know sandwich when you get there the entry fees uh, everything else what would the whole cost of doing that event be to a punter who goes there in their, you know, their Series 1 MX-5 or something like that? I reckon... Well, you're not going to get through any consumables, really, are no. you? No, 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 no. Particularly, it was wet the day that I did it, which just helps the tyres, helps the brakes. But, you know, it's probably 100 quid. If you, if you haven't yet joined the member, the motor club, it's maybe 120, 130 quid. But, you know, as a... And you have to do that once, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But as a, that's a day out, maybe with some mates, competing in motorsport, um, and it costs... If you buttons. think about just how easy it is to spend 100 quid on a ticket to almost anything, or yeah. you know, if, if there are more than one of you going, or you know, a meal out with a family or anything, 100 quid mm. just disappears these days, doesn't it? Doesn't, it does. Touch the sides. And I think, um, it's, I, I probably was myself, but it's easy to be sniffy about driving around if you're in a manual car, probably mostly in first gear around some cones um, because it's not circuit racing is it it's not 100 miles an hour through craner curves um, but just think about the cost the effort the time commitment that goes into competing in circuit racing you know as well as anybody um, oh it's and- it's you know we we, we, we call it uh, rushing to wait and waiting to rush uh, you spend huge amounts of time doing nothing that's basically what motor racing is, punctuated by very, very brief periods of frantic activity, which cost you. I mean, I can remember when I first started racing, um, you know, back in the early 1990s, I guess. And I had this big Chevy Camaro because it was cheap and I didn't think I'd get hurt if I crashed it. Um, it would cost, I'd be, the unit cost was over £100 a lap of the indie circuit at Brands, which took a lot less than a minute to get around. So I was spending yeah. over 100 you know, and this was 30 years ago. I was spending a hundred pounds a minute racing that if I mm. didn't crash it, if I didn't <laughs> blow it up, if everything went absolutely according to plan, it was a hundred quid a minute, 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And you're talking about a hundred quid today for an entire event. Yeah. And I'm sure I, I, in fact, I know for a fact that circuit racing is ultimately a much more thrilling form of motorsport, but you just have to remember that auto solo is a hundred quid and it takes almost no effort to get on the start line. Well, I haven't done it, but I know, I mean, I've, I've, I've skidded around codes before and it's fun. It's so fun. And it's also, and it's competitive. You are being timed yeah. against other people. Um, so you do get to benchmark yourself. So, you know, your, your competitive juices start flowing and yeah, it's not circuit circuit racing, but you know, it's not the cost of circuit racing, is it? I mean, no. no, well, I'm glad you did it. I want to have a go now. Yeah, it's good fun. So um, Motorsport UK are really pushing this. So if you want to know more, just Google Motorsport UK Street Car and you'll find the website. All the information is there. It's very easy. I took part in... I, I wanted to make a story of it. So I took part in what I thought was one of the least appropriate cars I could imagine, which was a, a big, heavy, extremely powerful electric car. You know, I was just curious <laughs> to see what would happen. It was a, a Kia EV6 GT. Um, I, Auto solo, you need a little light, lithe, nimble car for darting around all these cones. What you don't necessarily need is a tall 2.2 ton thing with almost 600 horsepower. What would be the perfect, an Atom? Uh, yeah, Catrim. Catrim's a quick, very quick. Your car would be good. Um, but an MX-5, a Mark One MX-5, or any MX-5, frankly, they're really quick. Um, but they're, they're brilliant fun as well. Front engine, rear drive, so you're skidding them around. Manual box, buzzy little engine, cheap. They're absolutely ideal for it. But when honestly, when you go there and you see people using K11 Micros, old Novas, Corsas, someone turned up in a diesel 308, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Also, if, if you've never done any form of motorsport before and you're just 
And you, and you don't want to just go and buy a race car or buy a drive and yeah. something scary. You, know? you just want to stick, you know, the tip of one toe in the water and just mm. see what it's like to be in a competitive situation while driving a car. It's just perfect, isn't it? And then yeah. if, if and, and you know, there'll be some people who go there and think, well, that was fine, but you know, I feel I've ticked that box and don't want to do it again. Yeah. And other people will go, ooh, hang on, mm. I might want to do a bit more of this. And then you're yeah. off. Yeah, away you go. And I promise you, if it's the first form of motorsport you've ever ever participated in, you will experience those same nerves that you do before your your first circuit race. You've written about it. It's a curious thing, isn't it? But there comes a moment where you just think, actually, I'd rather be anywhere. But yeah, I was uh, I was talking to as you do um, for something which we're going to be doing um, a bit later on. I was talking to Gordon Murray day before yesterday. Um, and we were talking about his first ever race. And this is Gordon oh, yeah. Murray, okay? This is the man who's designed championship winning Formula One cars. And he's talking about me sitting on his, sitting in the grid in his home built car in 1967 or 68 and some track in South Africa, thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> that everybody thinks the first time they do any Formula One, basically thinking there's nowhere in the last I wouldn't rather be than here right yeah. now. And then yeah. suddenly the flag drops and it all just disappears. Or you leave it behind on the start line. It's absolutely yeah. remarkable. If you've not had that feeling, however terrible it is while you're having it, the yeah. moment it goes is a moment of utter revelation, isn't it? Yeah, it is amazing. It really is amazing. Um, okay, well, if you want to find out how I got on in that Kia, just go and check out the story on the Intercooler app and the intercooler.com. It's there waiting for you. Um, briefly, let's just mention the Lamborghini Huracan Storato, which is another one Can of Can we talk these. about the video? <laughs> Uh, we do actually have to talk about the video, don't we? Oh, okay, there is a theory. Well, can we, can, can a, we talk about Keen Harpist as well? Yes, we can. There's a theory, though, that this video was intentionally terrible, but I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't believe I it. I don't buy it. There's a creative agency somewhere that's hoodwinked. Actually, they don't even think they've hoodwinked a Lamborghini. They probably think they've done a, a wonderful job, but it's just dreadful, isn't it? Go and watch. Yeah, I mean, how would they find it? It's on Twitter. It's all over Twitter. Richard Porter's done a fantastic spoof of it. Um, Yes, it's basically, it's the promo video for the Lamborghini Storato. If you you find someone saying in the opening few seconds of it, concrete yearners, you'll know you've got the right video. (laughs) So about, well, 10 years ago, I would think, Aston Martin for the Rapide, I think, produced the world's worst promotional video. Uh, which was basically this appalling Bond ripoff, mm. um, in which <laughs> in which people have to say what they do for a living. One of them announces that he's a keen harpist, uh, <laughs> and this kind of uh, achieved legendary status within within oh, the yes. industry. The moment it went, I think they pulled it almost immediately after because it, it had such a uh, the effect was so much the opposite of what they intended it to be. I never thought that anyone would ever do anything that bad again. But Lamborghini have managed this. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it compares. If, if it's a spoof, what I want to see is the blooper reel. Okay, I want to see all the yeah, laughing where all, the, where all these people are just wetting themselves. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. At, at, at this ridiculous thing, they're, and I bet it doesn't exist because I bet it's serious. Yeah, it's sort of perfume ad levels of nonsense, isn't it? It is extraordinary. The thing, okay, the thing about this ad in particular is that the car is really exciting and you could make a fantastically evocative engaging video promotional video of just the car itself i think porsche basically did with the 911 dakar well, the dakar which is which is you know similar sort of thing isn't it very similar sort and, of and, car. and they went and they just did a well you know a proper professional exciting promotional video mm. showing the car off at its best and <laughs> this is just not that um, go and watch it. It's very, it's very funny. It'll brighten up your day. Um, but the car itself, so it, uh, yeah, I mean, we've compared it already to the 911 Dakar, and it's another one of those off road supercars, which is a, this new genre, isn't it? This new category of car that's, that seems really quite exciting. We just need to have a go in one of them. Um, so it's got the V10, of course, it's the Huracan, still four wheel drive. It's got wider tracks, it's got knobbly tyres, a bit like the 911 Dakar. Um, it's lifted by 44 millimetres which is, so the 911 Dakar is lifted by 50, and then it's got another 30, hasn't it, on a, on a, on a lift. The Lamborghini's got half the extra ride height, and presumably it is a lower car already than a, the 911 GTS, which is what the Dakar's based on. Um, so probably the 911 Dakar's got a good deal more ground clearance. Um, someone's going to get them both together. We need to try and make sure it's us. 
But that's going to be a hell of a twin test, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I fear after the relentless mocking of their video, that I, <laughs> <laughs> it may, may, we may not be that high up the queue. But um, yes, it's, it's all done in jest, Lamborghini. Please let us drive your car. Well, this is it. But it is done in jest. And because the car, I love the idea of the car and I'm desperate to have a go. But the video is just laughable. You know, you, you have to be able to put your hand up and go, OK, yeah, we, we perhaps slightly overegg that one. Um, What's the line? Dust is gold. I was I, 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 I was laughing too much. <laughs> uh, okay, let's leave that behind. Um, all right, so we're talking about long termers. Um, they're the greatest blag ever, no? Isn't that it? Isn't it just car journalists on the blag? Yeah, it is. Um, well, <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, yes, absolutely. And insofar as that they are free cars, um, which get supplied to us by car manufacturers um but they are okay how do you defend them you defend them because people who read about them find them really interesting correct um you know i you know if you uh do any research into these things as to what articles and what uh publications are the ones that have seen them people turn to the most quickly and then spend the most time reading um it's always the long termers and i think it's because um it's kind of the real world bit. Yeah. It's not just, you know, road testers up mountain passes going sideways in Lamborghinis or whatever. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of the one moment where, um, you know, we, where, where we, we are sort of reminded of, um, you know, the real world in which everybody lives. And it's, um, and, and, and it's useful for us to, you know, to live with a car because there is, there is absolutely an enormous difference between just driving a car for a day, which is what you tend to do on a launch, and living with a car for a, for a number of months. And you find out all sorts of things. Mm. Uh, and certainly when I write long-term reports, I tend not to write about, you know, what the car is best known for. I don't know if it's a high-performance car, you know, writing about how fast it is. People kind of already know that. And, they've you know, they've got that from all the road tests they would have read. Um, and it is... <sighs> It, it is a good opportunity to just live with a car and find out all those little things about it that annoy you or all the, maybe all those little thoughtful touches, which you wouldn't have been aware of, you know, in that, in those few hours, you know, you spent behind the wheel when you first drove it. So, you know, so they are useful. Um, and yeah, of course they get us about. <laughs> they are useful. Um, and uh, okay. Before we go any further, my only grievance with long term is, is <clears throat> when a magazine or a website, whatever, will take anything that's offered to them because the photographer needs a pool car. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it, it, that almost feels like abuse of the, the, whole, the whole point of a long term. It should be something that's interesting to the reader, something that will reveal more about itself over time. And then long termers are fantastic. Um, this was going to be a listener question. So a shout out to Graham King for sending this question in. I was just going to do five minutes at the end of an episode. But I thought, actually, let's... Let's spin this out into a full episode. So, Graham, thank you. Um, and he specifically asks, um, have we ever come close to buying a long-termer that we've run? I think he's specifically asking about the exact car that we've run, run but we can also talk about you know, buying <clears throat> a, a similar car or the same car later on in life. So have you, I mean, you must have run a few cars. Have you ever run the numbers on one? Yeah, um, there was a 335D Touring BMW. You remember that car? Um, 286 horsepower, 3-litre diesel, 3-series Touring. Um, and I did I, I did try and buy it um, because I, I just... I got on with it so well. Um, and... It just it just fitted my life when we had a young family at the time, and, and it would have just been, and it just would have worked. Uh, I loved the fact that it was. I can remember having a sort of an impromptu, you know, run on the road with somebody in an RS4 Audi, and it didn't get away. Um, and it was so fast, and I just I just loved it. I just really really enjoyed it, but um, I just couldn't afford it. It was just you know I was I, I guess I was kind of hoping that um, they'd say oh we'll. Yeah, the BMW would say we'll sell it to you for the price that we'd sell it to our dealer for, i.e., a trade price. Not a bit of it. Uh, they were actually very proper and correct about it. They said, "Well, it'll go to a dealer. We'll let them know that you're interested, um, and then you can have a conversation with them." 
Um, and the dealer wanted to charge me full retail, which is absolutely fair enough, and I couldn't yeah. afford it. So that was the end of that. Uh, okay. How about you? Uh, not quite, um, but I did run a Mark Seven VW Golf R pre-facelift for a year, and now I've got a Mark 7.5 GTI. So, you know, it might well be that having lived with that Golf R for a while, realising how effortlessly they slot into your lives, I thought that's the car for me next time, albeit with two fewer drive shafts and a bit less power. Um, So possibly, but what I remember really fondly is my first job in this line of work, 21 years old, moved to Kent, um, and (laughs) my granddad bless him had very very generously given me a car he'd bought a new car so he gave me his old car Um, and for a few months this was my car this is how how I got around which is great except it was an automatic Vauxhall Vectra 1.6 and it was absolutely lamentable Um, (laughs) he I remember collecting it from him and he was talking me through the controls thoughtful um, and on the automatic gear selector, there was a button marked S, and he said, S, that's for a speedy getaway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. But, you know, it, it was a free car, and it got me around, and um, later on I sold it, so thank you, Grandad. But I sold it because I, I got my first long-termer, um, <clears throat> and I was a kid at Christmas when this thing turned up. It was a black, brand new Suzuki Swift Sport, the the first generation one. Um, and what I distinctly remember is in the weeks before its arrival, just doing endless, endless laps on Gran Turismo in a Suzuki Swift Sport. <laughs> just, I don't know what I was doing, just preparing myself for this car, learning how, I don't know. Um, but it just shows the level of excitement um, and it was fantastic. And I had it, I think I had it for a year. Um, super fun thing to drive, particularly when you're 21 and not very thoughtful. And I took it to Brunters and <clears throat> it would slide about really beautifully when you lifted off the throttle. Um, buzzy little engine, just mega. Can I talk about my first long-termer? You can. I'd been on auto car for a while. Um, and back then, if you were road testers, you didn't get a long term because you didn't need one because you were testing anything. Um, and then I think they just got sick of me and they thought I need to bring it back down to size. So they, they decided they're going to stick me on the news desk. Um, and my job was to produce this thing called database, which was a spread at the back of the magazine every week, detailing thrilling things like where the latest road works were on the M1. <laughs> oh god top 10 best-selling cars in britain um all this sort of and that was my life i mean so i went from testing 911s to basically being the traffic news um and the wonderful cars i was road testing on a daily basis got replaced by a long-termer which was you won't even remember what this is a proton 1.5 gls wow (laughs) was the first proton into the country and it was i'll tell you what was most annoying about it which was that it wasn't so unfit for purpose i could just chuck it back it actually worked in a perfectly adequate way it was horrible it had no charm of any description at all it had no it had it was a car almost entirely devoid of any form of merit but it didn't break down um i you know it had some room in it um and and it got me about but i was just i was just miserable and i can i can remember sitting i used to we the office used to be in teddington and i had about a sort of like a 10 mile commute um and i can remember sitting in very heavy traffic on the a316 um miserable in this thing and there was a big pale gray plastic shroud around the sunroof it had a sunroof which fell off and landed on my head Uh, so i ended up sort of wearing this thing as a necklace Uh, and it was this slimy gray and i could just think i can just sit here thinking there has to be more to life than this (laughs) um and 
The only thing that saved me was how bad a road tester I was at the time. I was an even worse news hound. Um, and so they chucked me off the news desk. Nobody else wanted me. Um, they couldn't quite find sufficient grounds to fire me. So they put me back on the road test desk. Um, and I was happy again after that. And so began a glittering career. Um, so what, what were Proton hoping to achieve by sending you that car for a while? Exposure. You know, they were just hoping, you know, they, they were new into the country. Get it in the magazine. Yeah. Get it in the magazine um, and, you know, and take the hit, um, you know, all publicity is publicity. Um, mm. and, and and also, you know, the car wasn't, you know, there were lots of really, really awful cars. I mean, we forget that these days because, you know, there's that old hoary adage about there's no such thing about a car anymore. Well, to an extent, it's true. Um Although, and this is another conversation, I think we're going, we may be getting back into an era with electric cars where, the, where such things are truly bad cars, particularly for the price, come back. But back then, there were some really, really terrible cars. I mean, yeah, back then, I drove things like FSOs and Zastavas and Yugos and, you know, Skodas before Skoda were bought by Volkswagen. And, you know, there were some... There were some true. I remember a thing called the Mahindra Indian Chief, which was Mahindra's attempt to do a sort of a Jeep Jeep. Um, and I can remember getting in the car, discovering it had no fuel in it, driving it to the fuel station, filling it up, and instead of going home, driving it back to the office and parking it because it was so unbelievably <laughs> awful. Um, I'd rather take public transport. So yeah, that's the only car basically I've refused to drive because it was. I just I didn't think it was safe, um, and it was it was the ride was so abominably awful that even in Teddington, um, it was just you know it, it was doing my back in and you know, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah. So, so I mean, back then cars were awful, but the Proton wasn't. The Proton mm. was just mediocre. It was staggeringly, stultifyingly. Uh, gravity-defyingly mediocre, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what long term have you enjoyed having more than any other? What's the highlight? You've run some cool stuff, even recently. Yeah. Um, well, I could tell you there is one which absolutely stands out, um, but I thought I might sort of keep it for the end a little bit. Well, okay. So, well, what I can say is that of all, the, if I could have one long term again, um. Actually, it's another BMW. Um, I had an i8 for a year. Goodness me, I love that. I hated the attention it got, but I think that that is one of those cars that people will look back on and think, did they really do that then? Did they really, you know, back then in 20, whatever it was, I think, you know, I think if you think came out of 2014, um, or maybe even earlier, did they have a car with, you know, carbon fiber construction? Um, with a three-cylinder mini engine in it, um, which you could plug in, had a decent all-electric range, which looked that good, um, which worked so well. I mean, to me, it was a postmodern 911. It was just a car that you were you were just so happy just to see it parked outside your house. And, you know, I, I think that in the press, I mean, I loved driving it. I thought it sounded good. People said, oh, you know, the noise is all synthesized. But all cars... All noise of cars made these days, one extent or another, are synthesized. Um, there was nothing about that car I didn't like, apart from it had quite a small, it had quite a small boot, um, and if you parked it next to something, well, you couldn't park it next to anything in any car park because um, those gullwing doors meant you couldn't get out of the car. But other than that, it was that's the car. I often think to myself, you know, if, when this business has had enough of me, what would I go and get? Um, I think I'd probably go and get an i8. Mm, interesting very interesting do you remember when you first tested <clears throat> an i8 bit on the launch or when you had one for a week in the uk or so, and did your impressions of the car change having run one? Oh, completely and this is exactly the point of the long-term test yeah. you know, the yeah. i8 is almost the definitive example of a car that's better <laughs> to live with than it is to drive i can remember driving it it was the launches up in scotland and bmw did it really well um because they flew us up there in a private jet and people, when they hear that, always think, oh, that's, you know, that's journalists being, you know, pampered. And to an extent it was, but actually the reason they do it is that if you're going to book 26 seats, um, it's often cheaper to do it that way. But anyway, so we flew up to Inverness and I can remember 
um, we came down the steps of the aircraft and all the I-8s were there in a row. We literally just walked out of the aircraft and into an I-8 and set off over the Highlands. Uh, and I can remember thinking, this is a lovely car. Um, and coming back and writing a positive report of it, but not really thinking that much more about it. Um, but it, it kind of left enough of me to think, gosh, if ever the opportunity came up to run one as a long time, that'd be good. But to live with, it was so much better. It was just, you know, because then you could really appreciate, you know, the ride and the refinement. And I'm not really a huge person for the way a car looks. And I, I have no interest whatever in what, whatever it is people think their car says about them. But it was, to me, it's a stunning design. And it was just a nice thing to have parked outside your house. Um, and all I can tell you is it made every journey an occasion. And there was never a time when I wasn't pleased to see it. Uh, and it's this thing I've, I've mentioned this about other cars. Well, you know, if, if you fly in from you've been away for a while, you come back and you, it's, you know, the, it's Heathrow and it's dark and it's raining and you're tired and cheesed off. Um, what is sitting there waiting for you becomes actually quite important. Um, because if it's something like an I-8, you're basically home three hours before you're home. Whereas yeah. if it's something which is, you know, horrible or just, you know, bland or mediocre and it's just a tool for doing a job then you don't get that so those sorts of things you know when you do the sorts of mileages that we do in your way as often and as much as we are um those sorts of things become really really important and yeah loved it yeah i agree about the i8 absolutely um so i'm yeah around the time that i8 was new actually 2014 or something i started at evo um as a road tester and i was due a long-termer and I thought, here we go, hit the big time. Where's my 911? Where's my BMW M car? Mercedes AMG, that'll do. And they chucked me a Vauxhall Corsa, um, albeit a, a VXR Club Sport. So, you know, a quick one. But it wasn't terrible, actually. I remember that car. Do you know what? I was disappointed when I heard that's what I was getting. But, and actually, it, it was a bit annoying to live with because it's a very bouncy car. Not harsh in terms of ride, but just always bouncy. And there's weird things about it, like the throttle mapping and the steering that made it just a bit annoying. But when you had it on the right road or on a track, um, like a little handling track, or I did a hill climb in it, it was lightning up that hill climb. It was so good. It had um, this really tightly wound limited slip differential. That just actually, more than any other diff I've ever come across, it dominated the driving experience. It totally defined how you drove that car because you would just launch it into a corner and the instant you could get on the gas, you would do so and it would just drag you out of the bend. No matter how fast you went in, if you could just get on the power early, it would drag you out and sort sort you out. Um, and I remember launching it up the hill at Gersten Down, which is a great hill climb course. Um, and somehow because the car was so grippy and quick and it had that diff monstering everything else um it was brilliant fun and we did a uh at evo we did a a long termers away day we went to blighton park and um we all set a time in this car around a little handling course um and it was it was just fantastic you could Honestly, around a tight little second, maybe third gear handling course, this car was quicker than all sorts. Did it beat any of the big stuff? Well, we didn't actually time it against the big stuff. What we did was everyone set a time in the Corsa. But I know, having driven everything else that day, I know the Corsa would have been quicker than all sorts of other powerful rear drive cars. Um, but it was it was just fantastic. Um and then, of course, on the drive home, it was really annoying again. So I was, after six months or whatever, I was quite pleased to see it go. Um, but that was, a, that was an interesting... Again, I suppose that's um, revealing about why long-termers... Having a long-term is a useful exercise. Because if you just drove one on the launch event and they, drove, they chose the roads well, perhaps had you on a handling track at some point, you'd think it was fantastic. But the rest of the time, it's just profoundly annoying to live with. Um, and then I remember the one I had after that was a BMW M4. And so there you go. That was me arriving. That was me thinking, here I am at Evo, made it. 
Um, and of course, it wasn't quite the car we all hoped it would be. No, no. Uh, I'm just trying to think of things, again, talk about cars which were just unexpectedly great to live with. And I had a Focus ST only about a year ago, maybe a bit more, 18 months ago, I can't remember. Um, and I had that for a year and, and I genuinely thought when it turned out, I thought this is going to be a bit of fun. Um, but I'll have a year of it. And I'll probably be quite pleased to get out of it and into something else uh, at the end of that year. And I wasn't. I didn't want to give it back. It was that car handled so well. Just such a uh, and and, you know, and and now that Ford are killing all these cars and you know all those you know Fiestas and Focuses and everything else, it just makes you realise. You know, it made me think hard about just how good those cars were. And I put it up against all sorts of things. I put it up against a uh, a Series 8 Golf GTI. I put it up against a Mustang, 5-litre Mustang, because, you know, there was like the sort of the yin and the yang um, of Ford performance cars. You know, one, you know, with a you know, front-wheel drive with a turbocharged four-cylinder engine and, a, and, and the other rear drive with a naturally aspirated V8. And the Focus just blitzed both of them. Hmm. It was just, you know, you, you, you think, yeah, Ford Focus, you know, this isn't, you know, an RS, this is an ST, and you think against a five litre V8 manual Mustang, you think, well, I mean, come on. Absolutely not. It, was, it wasn't just quicker point to point. It was more fun to drive. Um, it came on those brilliant uh, Michelin Pilot um, 4S tyres. Uh, and, you know, I got to a point with it where, apart from the slightly shabby interior, there was... There was nothing about that car that I wouldn't have been happy to go on living with for a very, very long time after that. The most disappointing long term you've ever had. I'm glad you asked that, Andrew, <laughs> because <clears throat> this is where expectation and reality proved to be too quite. Was it the M4? It wasn't the M4, actually. Um, no, I quite liked having the M4. You know, I was well aware of its limitations and it frightened me a few times. Particularly, you know, in the wet and when it's cold and when it's super sport tyres haven't come up to temperature. And even just on an upshift, and the thing gives you a big spike of oversteer. Oh, it's really disconcerting. Um, but actually, I, I liked having it the rest of the time. I thought it was pretty good to live with. But the one that I thought was going to be fantastic and actually was a bit disappointing was, and you'll understand this the moment I say it, um, Audi R8 Spider. Yes, thereby hangs a tail. <laughs> so uh well you could you get comfortable in it no 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 not quite not quite and so this one had the fixed back seats that were well actually so they were very upright and they had a very thin back which does mean they went back further than the standard seat so you could have more legroom you could create more legroom for yourself which was helpful because in that car and it's the same with the lamborghini huracan um the drop top one they you lose a big chunk of the cabin because of the roof mechanism or something. Tell me um, about it. Yeah, and so if you're tall, you just won't get comfortable. I'm you... six foot three. I could barely. I can remember I had it, and I took it to Bath, which is only about what's that, thirty miles away from me. Um, and really having to steal myself for the journey back because I was in so much pain mm. on the way there. It's just ridiculous that they yeah. basically just thought, well, if you're over six foot, tough. You don't matter. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I've I've never found them comfortable. Always just in a slightly awkward position. Um, so this this red one that I had, it did have the seats that meant you could go back further. So my legs were sort of stretched out as they wanted to be at least, but they were they were bolt upright and just not comfortable to sit in, um, which was part of the problem. But also, you know, it was heavier, much heavier than the the coupe, and you felt it. It, it it just wasn't as fast as you thought it should be. And it, it meant that the engine felt a little, a little bit strangled. Um, you know, it wasn't a particularly engaging drive. Um, certainly not as good as the, the coupe. And so I, I, I found myself in this car that I found uncomfortable just to sit in. I found it not as exciting to drive as it should be. It didn't feel as fast as it should do. And so I'm just thinking, what am I getting out of this thing? And if I'd spent, what was it, 100, 150-odd probably, I guess, maybe a bit more, I don't know. But if I'd 
saved up a deposit and really stretched to afford the 1500 quid, two grand a month payments, and I was committed to it for three years, for instance, I'd have been gutted. Because I, I actually didn't enjoy having it or driving it every day. The other thing about it was it's so obnoxiously loud when you start it early, when you start it up from cold. Um, and this was a time when I was living in Bristol but working at Evo in Northamptonshire um, and commuting, you know, clearly not doing it every day, but maybe two or three times a week. And so I'd be setting off early. And I remember staying at my, um, my partner's house then, when we, before we moved in together, staying in her flat a, a couple of times. And the car was parked on the road outside. And at six in the morning, I'd have to fire it up. And you get this. And for the first 20 seconds, it sits there going. It's trying to warm the cats up, isn't it, for the emissions. It's sitting there going. And there's nothing you can do. And you're shuffling out of the tight parking space as quickly as you can, just desperate to get off down the road. Um, and Imogen's flatmate thought I was doing it intentionally. Of course, everybody will. Everybody yeah. thought you're just being a dick. Yeah. And, uh, of inconsiderate dick waking everybody up in the street at five o'clock in the morning. And you would assume that. You would assume that. Well, you, you wouldn't sit there thinking, oh, yes, he's just warming his cats. So, no, 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 no. They'd just think. Knob. He's big. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I came down one morning. Um, and someone had put a brick through the driver's side window. Ooh. Not nicked anything. They hadn't even reached inside. Um, and I don't know if it was just a random... Well, it's not a random attack because it was a bright red Audi R8 and no, one, no, no other car had been attacked like that. But was it because of the noise it made? Or was it just because it's an ostentatious-looking car and someone took an exception to it? Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, if anything, is going to take the, the shine off a an ownership experience, in inverted commas, <laughs> it's an attack like that, isn't it? Um, and so in the end, quite pleased to see that one go. Okay, so um, my most disappointing one was uh, another example of cars which are different when you live with them to when you drive them. Um, but this was the other way around. Um, was an Alfa Giulietta. I, I, I've, you know, there's a bit of me that will always forever be Alfa Romeo because I've been very lucky to spend quite a lot of time mucking about in old Alphas. Uh, I mean, not sort of, you know, massively valuable pre-war Alphas, but, you know, 1960s and 50s Alphas and that sort of thing. Um, and and I understand a bit about how the quality of the engineering that went into those cars, how hard they thought about what really mattered to the driver and how they created this endless series of wonderful driving cars. And I, you know, ever since I became a motoring journalist and Alpha were just making dud after dud after dud, I'd be waiting for that moment when they just produced a, you know, a, an affordable, compact, fun little car. And the Giulietta came along and I went, I think the launch was somewhere like Sardinia. Um, and I don't know, it's just one of those occasions where because you want it to be good mm. and because it was so much better than what Alfa Romeo had done in any recent past, you think, wow, it's here. They finally cracked it. They finally produced. But in fact, cold light of day back in the UK when one turns up and you've got to live with it for a year, um, you just kind of realise that it was it wasn't a bad car. It was just disappointing. It just wasn't as good as, you know, well, you know, the Golfsons, you know, and, and the other cars, which you might, you know, normally buy instead of it. Uh, I quite like the look. And that 1.4 litre um, turbo engine was quite characterful, but the chassis just wasn't there. It just wasn't a properly indulgent, engaging hot hatch, which is what I, which is all I wanted it to be. Um, and every time I got into it, you know, particularly, well, if you live where I do in the middle of nowhere, uh, and you've got an early morning start, you know, at least, you know, the first few miles are going to be a hope because there's going to be nothing on the roads and you're going to be skidding around wonderful roads. Um, and every time you get into it and you just think, well, it's not going to be a hope because this car, it doesn't really turn in properly. It doesn't, you know, react very much to throttle position. And it was just a bit turgid a bit stodgy it also had these these weird pedals where the brake and the accelerator were at exactly the same level yeah. so 
you know, mm. you know, and, and you know, accelerators are always slightly below the brake. So you could just be so if you so even subliminally, you your foot goes there and you can feel the brake on that and you know you're on the right pedal. I lost count on the number of times I trod on both pedals by mistake. And I never got myself into a difficult situation, but it also made um heel and towing very and it was just I just remember being <laughs> glad to give it back. And it was just it was a nice car to drive you know, on a decent day when you're not thinking too hard about, you know, but to actually live with it every single day, it just just didn't do it. I was really sad about that because I really thought that was going to mark a turning point for Alfa Romeo. As mm. it is, we're still kind of waiting, aren't we? So what did you, you've run some fairly tasty stuff as well. You've mentioned the R8, but I know you've had a McLaren more than one. You've you had a 911 fairly recently. Not that recently. It was a 991, so not that okay. recently. But, but yeah, but um, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't really going to mention the uh, the 720s because it's so far beyond um, anything I'm ever likely to be able to have myself. But but but, but okay. So I, I had a 720s for six months, and it's one of the reasons. I mean, I absolutely adored that car. You know, if the i8 was the car that, you know, I might try and buy myself and if the 335D was a car that I actually tried, I'd never try to buy a 720S because I could never afford it. And even if I could, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But the car I loved most, unsurprisingly, because it was like a quarter of a million quids worth of car by the time it had a few bits on it, um, was that car. And in six months, and I I absolutely, I I thought I was going to make the most of this and I absolutely mullered that car. It went around so many racetracks. It did so many. I drove it to, I drove it to Geneva one day, did the press day the next, and then drove it home again over the mountains. Always, you know, taking the the scenic route. Um, didn't spare it anything. And you know, and McLaren has this uh, this uh, reputation um, for having you know uneven reliability records. Stuff going wrong with that car. All I can tell you is that in six months and whatever it was, 10,000 miles that I did in that car, the only thing that went wrong with it was there was once it flashed up a warning saying the headlights had lost their ability to, to look around corners. They didn't turn with the steering wheel anymore. And the next time I turned it back on again, the warning had cancelled itself and the car was fine. That was it. It was bomb-proof. I've had, you know, I've had Mercedes and BMWs and Audis, which have been much less reliable than that McLaren was. Um, and and I, I also love that the, you know, the way that I can remember on those Geneva trips where you are, you know, despite, you know, your best intentions, you do, do still have to spend a long time sitting on motorways and just sitting there in that goldfish bowl with that wonderful visibility all around you um, in quiet and comfort because they are quiet and they are comfortable. Um, and then suddenly turning off the motorway is Dijon, isn't it? If you're going to go over the Jura Mountains, and suddenly this entire other animal appearing, um, which is so phenomenally, preposterously, unfeasibly rapid that I, you know, I, I, as we said it before, you couldn't imagine a circumstance where you ever want any more performance than that. But, you know, actually driving that car fast on those roads was always an exercise in restraint. You were always holding it back, always holding yourself back. Um, and yeah, I, I just adored that car. Um, but actually if it was my car, um, I'd be frightened of damaging it. Uh, I'd be frightened of the cost of running it. Um, and I'd probably rarely ever use it. So yeah, I'd be yeah, very lucky to be able to do that. Can I just, before we wrap this up, can I just talk about, the long-termer that I remember most fondly. The long-termer, which is it really is the only one that I kind of miss because I'm very good because you have to be in this job. But you, know, you drive a car and you get out of it and you move on to the next one. You just have to. Um, but actually, I miss this car. And if I could ever find it, well, I probably wouldn't buy it. But anyway, so when we're in 1994, oh, let me think, 1993, 1994, uh, I was on auto car and we built a Caterham. We built a red top, a Caterham 7 HPC as it was at the time. So this was a car with a two litre Vauxhall engine on it uh, on 45 um, Webers stuck out the side. And over the course of the weekend, a bunch of us, it was James May, there was me um, and a few other people whose names probably won't be familiar to people on this podcast. Um, 
the idea was that we would go into a shed at the back of the office on a Friday evening and drive a caterer with a bunch of cardboard boxes <laughs> and drive a caterer out on the Monday morning. Uh, it didn't quite happen, A, because caterer forgot to supply a load of bits, uh, and B, because we were utterly useless at building the thing. Um, so the thing went back to Caterham. Um, Jez Coates, who was the um, engineering boss of Caterham at the time, was kind enough to ring me up and say it was the worst built Caterham he'd <laughs> ever seen in his life. Um, they finished it off, by which I suspect means they actually we basically took, took it to bits and started again. Uh, and then that car came back and I ran it for six months of my long-termer. And because I'd had a hand in building in it, building it um i took my girlfriend on holiday to france in it for a fortnight wow and it was because she put up with that that i thought she's probably a good type and if she'll put up with that she'll probably put up with most stuff anyway um whatever it is thick end of 30 years later she's still my wife and the mother of my children um and i just have it never went oh it did one clutch cable um but it did a ridiculous number because it, i mean not only was i driving it all the time but everybody else wanted it so it did like twenty thousand miles in six months um and i think it did one clutch cable and that was it um and it was so fast and it handled so well and I, there was just this sort of pride that oh that i'd had a hand in building and 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 one day i've always although i'm useless with spanners i've got enough mates who are pretty good and again when i you know this business is done with me I, I might just go and build the car because it that did provide a dimension of enjoyment, which I haven't had with anything else. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's a great example of a car being so much more than just a means of getting around. So, so much more. It's a lo- lovely story. Okay. Well, that whole episode was a listener question. So thanks again, Graham King. All I have to do now is remind you all that um, you can now give a subscription to the intercooler as a gift. Uh, just head to the-intercooler.com and you'll see all the different options there. Please also rate and review the podcast. That's really important. It helps us find new listeners um, and it just means we can do more and more with the podcast. So thanks all for listening. We'll be back next week. See ya. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.